Well, happy. Well, happy Monday, everybody. We are back for another episode of Know Your Food, brought to you by Ripe.io, the blockchain of food, providing transparency in every bite. We are here today with founder Henry Gordon-Smith of the firm Agritexture. They specialize in consulting services for urban farming as well as other ventures within farming. And we have Henry here on the line. Good morning, Henry. Thank you for joining us. Thanks so much for having me. How's it going? Well, we're excited to speak with you today. I am in particular excitement to talk to you because urban farming and you are at the forefront of helping clients and you're about to educate our audience on urban agriculture. You come from a vast background. So, Henry, I just wanted to start with a few questions about you, your background, um, before we get into agritexture. And for folks that are listening, please follow along by going to agritexture.com. If you are in farming or want to know anything about it, this is a wonderful site. Um, they're a wonderful, exemplary team. They started as a blog. Henry is hands-on. They're based in New York and go all over the world. World, that is agritexture.com. So, Henry, let's jump right in. Tell us about you and why you started this firm. Yeah, so uh, first of all, I had the privilege of growing up around the world. So while I sound American, I'm not. I'm actually half Czech, half <laughs> British. And my dad's an engineer. So I grew up um, traveling the world as he worked on different construction projects. And I was born in Hong Kong. So definitely didn't grow up with a green thumb you know, lived in big cities like Hong Kong and Tokyo and Moscow, Russia. But with my undergraduate degree, I started getting exposed to climate change and sustainability questions. And what I found was a bit of a gap when it came to food. You know, food is so complicated. There's complex supply chains. There's complex production models, complex variables that may drive certain models of farms to be successful or not. And I was finding that people weren't really um, exploring all of the options available to them when thinking about growing in the city as they could. Like there, there were may, way more choices than people were exposed to. And so people mm-hmm. were kind of cutting corners or, or missing some opportunities. So, you know, I, I had some experience blogging. And so I thought, well, this is a great topic for a blog. Um, and I kind of called it agritecture, which is kind of this idea of bringing design thinking and architectural thinking to farming um, in the city. And I started showcasing all the farms and the models that I thought were really interesting, and, and the blog became quite popular. People really, it really resonated with people as they, they were also exploring this topic. They finally found a resource that was comprehensive and, and showcased things like hydroponic farms next to community gardens and everything in the middle. That's a phenomenal startup story. And so, Henry, let's talk about urban farming because I don't think a lot of people know. I think people think of you know, greenhouses and, you know, we throw things around like hydroponics or, and, and one mm-hmm. of the things is you guys talk about something that really struck me on your website, controlled environment agriculture. So maybe you right. could speak a little bit about that. Yeah, sure. So urban agriculture, just uh, from a definition perspective, is the production of food, but also includes any supporting elements like food hubs or markets. Basically, anything as it relates to an urban food system would fit under urban agriculture. Now, most of the time, that translates to, at least in the developed world, community gardens, right? Soil-based community gardens you see on vacant lots. Uh, maybe, maybe you have a shared garden with some neighbors. Maybe there's a school garden. These are some of the most popular ways. But 
agriculture technology is much more broad than that. You know, hydroponics, which you mentioned, is a way to grow food using water um, as opposed to soil as the main delivery system for nutrients and oxygen. Hydroponics has become more popular now because what it allows you to do is <clears throat> grow food where, where there isn't um, enough sufficient soil or quality soil, or maybe in regions where water scarcity is an issue. So it allows different integrations of agriculture to the built environment because you can integrate that into rooftops more easily. Imagine soil is very heavy. Hydroponics tends to be lighter. Um, but you can also take hydroponic systems, you can move them indoors, which is controlled environment agriculture, which is what you talked about. And CEA, controlled environment agriculture, is, is really about growing food anywhere and controlling the variables um, indoors. So controlling light, controlling nutrients, um, controlling temperature. And why would you do that? Well, maybe the climate you're in doesn't lend itself to grow very effectively. So when you engineer a structure or a controlled environment, you can now grow that plant um, or those products anywhere. So whether you're going to space, that's a big part of the research for CEA, is what we're going to use to grow um, in Mars or grow for the astronauts along the way. These are typically uh, greenhouses and controlled environment agriculture solutions. Or maybe you're in a city, a very cold city like New York in the wintertime. You might want to convert a warehouse and grow, grow indoors using hydroponics. Or maybe you're in the Middle East and you want to build a greenhouse or a vertical farm, something indoor, because you want to protect that, that, that really valuable resource of, of water. So CEA is a big part of what we do at Agritecture because um, there's a lot of uh, emergence of popularity for it as a response to climate change. You can imagine the climate's changing, but also because, you know, to grow in the city, you don't have a lot of high-quality soil, so you often need to go indoors. And now that's I hope that answers your question. <laughs> Oh a lot no, of Henry, there. beautifully because you know I think what we're what we're talking about too is and you know if I think of urban farming or or what you're talking about, we're also linking it to the fact that there's a food shortage or there's you know an issue going where our population is increasing and our ability to produce food is is becoming challenging. So you know I'm curious to know since you are a global firm. Where are mm -hmm. you seeing this concept of urban farming really work, and where have you seen it not get traction? And, and maybe you can talk about why sometimes there's even a resistance, or is it just why doesn't it work in certain areas of the world or even in this country? Yeah, exactly right. So as you mentioned, Agritecture is a global company. We've already consulted in, in 26 countries. And so out of our 110 consultations, it's been over across 26 countries and 48 cities, so very, very diverse uh, from the very beginning of our, of our business, and that's been exciting. And what we really like about that is the unique context of every site is what's going to drive and make certain models successful or not. So if I'm in California and I'm thinking about doing a vertical farm, well, you know, that's going to be pretty difficult because there's an abundance of local food and there's pretty great weather outdoors. But, for example, a hydroponic greenhouse where I'm saving water and, and still benefiting from the sunlight that may work um, well in that region. So let me tell you a little bit about where we're seeing some, some hot trends around this. First of all, <clears throat> across the world in, in high-end, let's say high-population cities, London, New York, Paris, Singapore, we're seeing a, a big emergence of kind of premium-style vertical farms, these indoor hydroponic farms that are growing you know, specialty herbs. I wouldn't say necessarily feeding the world, but they're providing these products for high-end restaurants. We've seen that emerge as a a popular uh, way of doing this. And typically they're growing rare herbs, microgreens, things like that. And so Farm One, which is Manhattan's first commercial vertical farm and one of our clients, 
is an example of this. And they took an unused basement and converted it to a vertical farm, and they serve Michelin star restaurants. If we go to the Middle yeah. East, where we have a lot of work, we've been working in Qatar, Kuwait, UAE. <clears throat> we've got three clients in Saudi Arabia. There it's about really saving water. And, and it's also about um, growing as much food locally as you can because most of those countries have under 3% of their, their land is arable, and most of them import a lot of products, over 80% of their products. And so to grow leafy mm-hmm. greens locally using less water is really a big driver for what would make it successful there. Now, we're seeing um, a lot of challenges there, though. It's very difficult to get the projects going because there's, there's a very uh, big gap in agricultural talent. You ask where are the areas where it's very difficult. Well, one of the things that's going to make it difficult for these farms to be successful is if there's really a lack of growers. In the end, even though these systems are engineered and they're high-tech, you still need quality growers. And so without that baseline of that talent, it's very difficult for agriculture, even urban agriculture, to grow and to scale. Um, if you look mm-hmm. at Vancouver... You know, Vancouver is where I, I got first interested in the topic, and they actually incentivized the first uh, commercial vertical farm in North America. It was on top of a, a parking garage there called Local Garden. And, you know, that, that system was very overly engineered. A lot of people in this industry, they focus too much on the technology as opposed to the grower talent or the operations or even the basics of understanding your customer. And this was an example of that. And so, you know, that farm actually was unsuccessful and went bankrupt, ran out of money, sold their equipment. And that really hurt Vancouver overall in the context of this new CEA industry, at least urban CEA industry. We haven't really seen any big vertical farms um, reappear in Vancouver because of that. So sometimes the drivers that would prevent it from happening can be things like a lack of talent. They could be things like the climate is, too, is very good for, for, for outdoor soil-based growing like California. Mm-hmm. Or they can be a policy mishap like what happened in Vancouver that can affect the climate to develop these new models for farming. Well, that's fascinating. I mean, where, how is it solving, and are vertical farms solving food in these areas that you mentioned? I mean, I think of, let's pick Middle East right now, where mm-hmm. hot, you have, you know, repressive sun, unbelievable temperatures, water is mm-hmm. definitely a commodity. How is it helping the population eat, and are these vertical farms really churning out food productively? Well, you know, vertical farms don't tend to produce a lot of calories. You know, they're mostly mm-hmm. focused on growing leafy greens and herbs, as I mentioned. And I don't think there's anything wrong with that. I think there's a fair crit- criticism of it and saying, oh, that's never going to feed the world. And, and that's, that's true in some sense that it's not going to provide the calories that, that maybe food insecure individuals need. But it's also true that there are addressable markets for leafy green production. People consume leafy greens. They consume salads. And very often those products are imported. And that importing actually affects the nutritional value of those products, the taste of those products. It affects food safety and risks associated with it. And and leafy greens are actually a big category where there's been food safety scares. So to grow that food more locally um, with less water resources in a cleaner way is a value proposition that someone can build a business case around. And I, I believe there's huge potential for these farms in the Middle East in particular. Now, to get to the caloric benefits of food security, I, I, I tend to lean towards greenhouses. I think greenhouses are an excellent way to produce a wide variety of, of, of fruits and vegetables in a low-carbon way and still get the benefits mm-hmm. of, of ongoing production. You can connect them to cogen systems more easily than vertical farms. You can connect them to natural gas, an excess that's possible that can help handle the heating, for example, in the Northeast. 
So, you know, I, I wouldn't go out there and say vertical farms are feeding the world. That's not something you would, you would hear me say. But I would probably mm-hmm. say that it does impact food security in the sense that it creates a new paradigm for agriculture in the city, which excites young people and moves them to start asking questions about the food system. And I've met young people who have worked on vertical farms and then moved into soil-based organic agriculture. So I think in a lot of ways, this, this technology is a gateway to get more young people involved in the space. And a lot of those young people live in cities, and we need them to be excited about agriculture. You know, Henry, I couldn't agree with you more, and you actually touch on a topic that I think makes a lot of sense, which is, you know, today consumers are starting to question a little bit. We've certainly read about E. coli breakouts or food recalls that have happened. We also have a generation where there's food allergies and sensitivity to ingredients. So I'm curious to know, you know, how are you seeing this way of farming, this urban farming, not just incite uh, excitement for young people, but where are you also seeing maybe a food security system and, and getting them involved and seeing that they're able to control what they eat in a certain way? Are you seeing urban farming help these young consumers with their food curiosities or allergies? Yeah, no, I think, I think you know, one of the big value propositions for urban agriculture is that it provides a way for consumers to connect with the topic of agriculture without leaving the city limits. And, you know, mm-hmm. I think that, 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 that there's a lot of evidence um, growing that, that demonstrates that, especially as this new high-tech form allows them to engage with that even in the wintertime. So Square Roots, which is a, um, a project, they've, they've just expanded to Grand Rapids, Michigan, but their first location is here in Brooklyn, New York. They have 10 vertical mm-hmm. farming shipping containers, and they have different young people uh, running those farms. And what they've done is they've designed it, or, and they were a client of ours, so we worked with them, but they open up the containers, and so you can look into it. And so they do a tour once a month. They get about 200 visitors. I, that's right, 200 people once a month wow. come to this farm. Um, we rain or shine. I've seen them go in there when it's completely pouring to learn about this and to see it. And then they go into the farmer's market. There's a market that Square Roots does with, with some of its collaborators, and they buy some of that product. And so, yeah, they leave with a fresh product, but they also leave understanding this technology more, understanding what's possible. And the fact is a lot of them can, can bring that to their, to their consumption behaviors, but also into their own professional lives. Uh, maybe they can influence the consuming and, and, and procurement strategies of the company they're working for. Maybe they, they work with some kind of finance or investment group where they work in policy. They can start to bring that back. And I think in, in, you know, in dense urban areas where people being inspired and, and connecting and networking is so important, providing these spaces where they can be exposed to ag tech really can have, have um, additional impact, like you mentioned, on, on helping them understand the food system, helping that system be more transparent, and helping to change their consumption behavior too. Well, given your expertise and your large vitae in, in this segment, Henry, I mean, where are you seeing consumers drive accountability for farmers, food producers, and brands? I think that consumers, based on the, the data that I'm seeing and the, and the, the performance I see of the, of the local farms that we work with, consumers are associating local farms with better products. They think it means pesticide-free okay. very often. Mm-hmm. They think it means higher quality. They think it means fresher. They think it means family farm. So very rarely will I advise a client to say, hey, market the fact that you're a vertical farm or market the fact that you're hydroponic. We're going to mostly focus on local. 
And I think that consumers do care about that. And I think that, that, that the fact that they care is actually driving retailers to put local forward a bit more. We're seeing policymakers right. now. Um, you know, Georgia has a Georgia-grown product line where they work with retail to get, retailers to get those products, you know, more in front of the customer. We're seeing right. New York grown is, is another one. So, 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 you know, there's starting to be shifts across the board from, from how it affects the farmer to the retailers to policy as well. And I think local is that big one. And this is really happening because I think consumers um, and various media outlets and, and just the overall knowledge of organic has shifted that consumers now know, oh, that doesn't mean it wasn't sprayed with pesticides. And local could right. have that, um, you know, local could shift as well in its understanding um, over time. But right now, that's the hot one. That's the popular That's the popular type of product that consumers want. So, Henry, I want to shift gears a little bit because I want to go back to agritexture. It started out as a blog, and I'm, if, if mm-hmm. folks go to agritexture.com, you can, you can really see the scope, and there's quite a bit of articles and a lot on this site. It's a wonderful information source. But I see this tab called events, and there's workshops available. I was hoping uh-huh. you could tell our audience about these workshops and, and really what agritexture is doing to help raise awareness and, and bring food accessibility <laughs> and urban farming to everybody because they look really fun. <laughs> Well, look, as you can probably hear, I'm, I'm very passionate about this topic. I'm excited about it. I mean, I've been blogging about it for 10 years now. And so, yeah, as you mentioned, we started as a blog, and I just wanted to share this knowledge with everyone in a, in a tech-agnostic way, right? There's not one-size-fits-all. That, that was kind of our theme, is to be global and to explore the various options to inspire others. But what we found was people needed to connect with us in person, too. They really wanted more information. You know, where are the economics? How do I really make that decision about a greenhouse versus a vertical farm? So I started thinking about, I think somebody asked me, uh, you know, what's the dream team to build an urban farm? And I started thinking mm-hmm. about that, and I was like, okay, well, you know, because it's in the city, you need an architect as well as a grower, and then you also probably need an engineer, and then you also need someone who's doing the business model, and you need somebody who's doing the marketing, and then you need somebody who's doing sustainability. So you need somebody maybe like the CEO. So I kind of came up with this idea of these six roles, and we developed agriculture design workshops, um, which is basically we've done them in 12 cities right now. So we pick a city, we recruit 30 professionals and divide them into three teams, and we pick a site, and we go through essentially what agriculture does with its clients on feasibility studies. But we do that in a group format where we empower them with a bunch of knowledge on the first day. And then the second day, they visit the site and actually sometimes visit the first day. But anyway, they design their solution. So they come up with, with what their idea is, and, and it's interdisciplinary. So they really get to bring in every single piece of the puzzle, and it's been really great to see what ideas they come up with. Since then, agriculture has also done custom workshops. Like we went to St. Jude Children's Hospital and did a workshop with them on this topic. We do workshops around scenario, scenario planning, more like macro strategies. We teach commercial urban farming classes here at our office in New York. We do uh, yeah. basically that's a, a, a more business-focused one. And more recently, we've started doing, I guess in the past three years, we started partnering with certain groups to produce events. So the Atlanta Conference is an event that we produced for three years uh, with the city of Atlanta. And there we were trying to kind of bring together high-tech farming and these issues around race and equity that are very relevant in Atlanta and several other cities in the, in the country. And so that event has been really successful as we worked with our director of Urban Ag. So we try to, you know, we try to connect with our community both digitally and in person all with the mission of empowering everyone anywhere 
to get involved in urban agriculture. I mean, that's, that's really our mission. And, and we may consult for, for those that are looking to get there faster, who really want the benefit of all of our data and our team. But overall, as, as the founder of the business, you know, my mission is to help anyone anywhere, no matter what their budget, to get to their next step as it relates to urban ag. Because I see our work and I see urban agriculture as a, a resiliency and adaptation strategy to climate change. Well, Henry, I definitely need to take a class because I have a dreadful black thumb and I have this aspiration to feed myself <laughs> on my own land. So count me as one of your students. And I even see coming soon, I mean, you do offer classes and it looks like you'll be launching digital classes soon for people. Exactly. It's a great lineup. So we've gotten so much interest from around the world. In fact, um, India just rose this week from being our third top region for traffic to our website to our second. Um, it's been growing over time. So we've been really working on a suite of solutions to create you know, digital, more democratized access to the knowledge that we've been gaining um, over the past 10 years. So, um, so one thing is what you mentioned, which is online classes. Our classes are now going to be available online at a lower cost than doing them in person. And so that'll be coming soon, definitely before the end of the year. And then the other piece is, which hasn't really been announced on our website yet, is we're actually taking our feasibility study methodology and our database and putting it online. So we're about to launch, it's already actually being tested in beta. It's called Agritecture Designer and it's online farm design tool. So you can develop your farming concepts by inputting certain things like your budget, what crop you think you wanna grow in your region. And we'll give you a short list of similar farms to your idea to be inspired. But you can also go further and for, for a fee, you can subscribe and start building your projects in the form of a 10-year economic projection. So you can really um, kind of do wow. it yourself if you're looking to do that on your own. And that's, again, part of that mission to democratize and grow. So that'll be coming soon. I mean, if you go to agrisector.com slash designer, you can sign up for beta still, um, and that may be of interest to you. Wow. Well, I'm definitely going to sign up. I need as much help as I can get. And it sounds like it's empowering to consumers. Try it. Go out and see what you can do. You can just need a little deck, even if you live in a city. Exactly. Yeah. And there's so much you can grow at home, really. If you have a garden or a balcony, there's so much you can do at home. Obviously, you need to be there to take care of it a little bit, but it's so satisfying. So, you know, Henry, I want to talk a little bit about the services that happen at Agritecture because for folks that are looking at the site, thinking about this, thinking of getting into farming or starting a business in food, uh, you offer quite a bit of help. So I'm hoping you can speak to a couple members of your team and some of the services you, you provide uh, so that folks listening can, can go to you as a resource for, hey, Hey, this is a great guide for me because it looks like after the classes they, they can really spend a lot of time on your site as well. But talk about your team and what you're doing service-wise for folks as well. Yeah, absolutely. I appreciate that opportunity. So, you know, we've grown organically. So our services have all been developed in the context of what the market has needed. You know, we started the blog providing information and then consulting requests came organically from that. I never thought I would be a consultant in this space. So what we really do is we provide technology agnostic advising. So for a lot of entrepreneurs in this space, they don't necessarily trust the technology companies um, like a lighting company or a racking company or a greenhouse company because those companies are selling their equipment. And so they're always going to cut corners when it comes to your idea because it has to fit right. within their equipment. So what we're kind of suggesting is a different route, an alternative, which is to say your idea matters the most. 
the uniqueness of your idea, the uniqueness of the integration of technology and your business model and your location matter the most. So design thinking is required. So really it's our feasibility studies are the most popular service, which is basically an A to Z planning solution for anybody who wants to do any kind of urban farm from low tech all the way up to high tech vertical farms. And we go through everything. We do um, market research, we do concept development, we analyze the site or give our clients checklists to analyze the site. We build out the farm design. We design the farm layout, the electrical, the plumbing, the whole thing. Um, and then we build wow. out materials lists and build out a whole economic model. And typically this will run for probably um, six weeks to four months, depending on the size of the farm. And what you get at the mm -hmm. end is really your, your, your total go-to-market strategy that you would need to raise money, uh, to raise additional money, or just to be confident to spend the money that you've allocated for your project. And we can work within, you know, whatever the capital cost budget is, we find ways to help with that. Uh, we've also been doing more work recently with cities, and that's um, basically advising on, well, what if we take a step back and look at a neighborhood or a city scale, and we want to accelerate urban agriculture, what are the scenarios to do that? So we have a unique methodology where we can access our database of urban agriculture models and lay them out over physical spaces. And we did that, for example, for Sidewalk Labs, which is a smart city project in Toronto that's under development. Uh, we do other work, including some grant work around workforce development with Cornell. We've worked with USAID to go to Kosovo and advise on how to make uh, their greenhouses more effective because there's a lot of greenhouses that aren't being fully utilized there. Um, we do other work, including some recruiting. I mentioned that talent gap. So we're yeah. working right now to find a head grower for a new vertical farmer in New Jersey right now. And, um, yeah, on our services page, you can see everything else we do. But, uh, honestly, each of these has developed over time as we've kind of worked with our clients and found what they need. But the vast majority of our clients, I would say, are probably 60% are still new urban farmers that need a whole mm -hmm. team. Like, they don't want to hire a whole team internally, but they need a whole team to coach them. And so just to answer your question about team briefly, what I've done is I've built a really incredible um, diverse team. So we've got people on our team that have been doing CEA uh, builds and design for almost 10 years now. We've got a, a, re a veteran urban farmer on our team that's been farming both indoor vertical and outdoor soil-based for about 25 years. He's also permaculture certified. We've got uh, Ricky Stevens, who, um, you know, is a, really a digital expert and also works on a lot of uh, policy-related work with us. Yara is our sustainability manager and operations director, so she builds our economic models and also helps calculate carbon footprint or other environmental impacts. And then we've got Brianna, who really leads our, our media and strategy piece of our business as well. So altogether, we're eight full-time, and then we've got probably about another eight subcontractors around the world that we work with to make sure that you're kind of getting everything you need and, and hitting all those angles. We don't miss any opportunities for you. Oh, that's phenomenal. You know, Henry, I, I really appreciate what you're saying about so the call to action to get people involved in the practice of farming. Could you speak a little bit, because I don't think people are aware that this is a ripe opportunity for a career. There's a shortage of farmers. So, you know, who, who can get into this? Yeah, you know, there, there is really a shortage of farmers, and, and, and I would say the talented head growers that we need. And when it comes to urban, you know, you need someone who, who has the experience and background of, of working on a, a, a farm that's at least an acre in size, I would say, at least, you know, and that's a small mm -hmm. farm when we're talking about conventional. 
Um, but they need to have that experience or even working in a commercial greenhouse and they need to have the creativity to embrace the urban context where it's a smaller space and sometimes there's more complexity, but so there's also great opportunity there. So we kind of need people with, you know, really strong, solid horticulture best practices and then someone who's also kind of creative and a bit of a maker. So it's a very, very hard profile to find. Um, but if you want to get into the space, look, the salaries are really increasing for head growers. You know, I find it very difficult um, to get people to be a head grower in the 65K range. A lot of them are demanding more 85 plus now. Um, the pathway to get there is, is, is pretty long, to be honest. You need to get work experience within a commercial greenhouse, and you ideally need to get some kind of horticulture degree. So if you got into it now, that's probably looking at, you know, four years of studies at least, and then moving into probably two to three years of commercial experience. And then you could get a really good job with one of these uh, vertical farming companies or indoor farming companies if you were, um, if you did all that right. So that's kind of the journey. You know, I think there are some people who skip over that because they go straight into greenhouse management or they go straight into the operations. If somebody does have three plus years of commercial growing experience, um, I will consider them for the roles, even if they don't have that horticulture degree. Wow. Um, and, and so you can complement that by doing certain certificates in horticulture. Uh, we definitely want to mm -hmm. get, you know, certain things like food safety, pest management. But again, all of that can be learned on the go. So there's really great opportunities for those individuals that are happy to do some internships, happy to take, um, you know, labor jobs within greenhouses. They can put themselves in a position for a market that's really uh, heating up. And also there's a lot of competition now because cannabis growers are being poached from the horticulture industry. And so that's also sure. increasing the salaries a lot. And that's tough. That's really mm -hmm. tough one for us. Sure. But in short, if you're sitting at your desk thinking about a career change or getting a, a certificate, this, this, you're needed. We need people interested in farming. We so, need it. And, and you're, yeah. a great, you're a great person to start. So if you're listening, you should go to agritexture.com because you can read the blogs and learn all about it and you, how you may be able to contribute. So, Henry, I have a question for you about totally personal. Let's get personal. So what <laughs> have you grown at home? What is the best yeah. crop you've yielded? <laughs> Yeah, I mean, you know, my favorites are tomatoes. My dad always grew tomatoes, um, and even our country house now, he still grows them. And so those are my favorites. And in my Bushwick apartment on my balcony, that's pretty much the, you know, the most high-yielding thing I, I, I could really grow. And so I'll grow a mix of plum and cherry, and I'll kind of see how they all perform. Um, but I prefer, you know, definitely to grow Italian tomatoes on the vine. I like to add those in the morning to my breakfast or just add them to a salad at night, and I find that's just the most satisfying thing for me. So I don't know if that's particularly unique, but that's what I'm into. <laughs> Wonderful. Well, Henry, thank you so much for your time. It's, we know you're busy, and we really appreciate uh, you sitting down with us. Um, finally, folks, please do go to agritexture.com. This is a very friendly site to learn about urban farming. Henry, any closing comments to our audience about, you know, what you want them to know and take away from urban farming? Yeah, I think, again, I want to ask all of you to think about the future of sustainable urban development and try to think about an urban technology that's renewable and green that embraces the food or embodies the food-water energy nexus, right? This is the key that we need to solve to be able to develop sustainably. And I think no technology embodies that more than urban agriculture. No technology fits in the circular economy more than urban agriculture. We've got biomass, energy, water, waste, all in a single system that needs to be solved. 
So by unlocking the keys to urban agriculture, we actually may drive sustainable urban development forward. So we need you. We need your ideas. We need your hard work. We need your motivation. And we need to really encourage this globally. So hopefully you'll check out our site. We've got blogs, events. We've got services if you need those too. And I really am grateful for this opportunity to share this uh, with you on rights. Oh, thank you, Henry. Well, thank you for your time. And, folks, you can also catch Henry. You can go to twitter.com forward slash theagritext. How appropriate. That's twitter.com forward slash theagritext. And we'll be uploading that for you folks. Click over there where you can engage with Henry, learn about everything he's doing. Or, better yet, go to agritexture.com. There are classes, workshops, soon-to-be online resources, blog posts. There's a lot going on. So whether you're like me with a black thumb and just want to grow some tomatoes and uh, – <laughs> nurture your diet internally or if you want to uh, learn more about becoming a farmer. I mean, this is just a very wide breadth of resources. Thank you so much, Henry. Wishing you a wonderful week and thank you for joining us. Thanks so much for having me. Take care, all. Take care, Henry. You have been listening to Know Your Food, brought to you by Ripe.io. You can visit Ripe.io to learn more about the blockchain of food where we are creating food transparency in every bite. Wishing everyone a wonderful week.